Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today, we're going to continue on our Authentic Biochemistry series production, generally talking about the immunoendocrinology of disease. Um, I've done already several um, video lectures on my YouTube feed on this subject. Uh, I'm switching back to audio now because we're going to be discussing things in rapid motion before we get back into some data. Um, the last few times we've been talking about the endocrine organs and particularly moving up into the central nervous system. And today, I'm going to talk about some pathobiochemical pathways directly in CNS, endocrine organs. This is the 27th of April, 2020. And again, it's Dr. Dan Guerra. So, as a general discussion, when we think about hormones and hormone receptors, first of all, think about the target cell, which can be anywhere, including in the periphery and in the central nervous system. You can have, in any given target cell, you can have receptors for any kind of potential hormone, peptides, growth factors, amino acids, lipids, carbohydrates, right? And all of those can be different kinds of hormones. Classic ones you think about that are secreted from, say, the adrenal cortex would be something like amino acid-derived hormones like catecholamines, right, from, from aromatic amino acids. Uh, that's one class, but of course there are peptide hormones and there are lipid hormones, right? And there are different kinds which regulate things like lipids. And they don't all come from the CNS. Anyway, once they bind to the receptors, sometimes the receptors are on the surface of the cell, the plasma membrane, and then they are often associated with the G-protein coupled receptor. And that's linked up to an enzyme that usually either involves the production of cyclic AMP, so like an adenylate cyclase, or sometimes it's associated with kinases. And then there's a kinase cascade that ultimately links up to phosphorylated protein intermediates that can do things like alter metabolism, um, change bioenergetics, alter the movement of organelles into various kinds of um, descending and ascending pathways, such as fission uh, for ascending, that is producing more mitochondria or more peroxisomes, or descending, such as autophagy of those specific organelles. You can also, of course, get just changes in metabolic pathways, like switching on glycolysis and turning off beta oxidation of fatty acids. But ultimately, you also get transcriptional alterations. Steroid hormones are uh, the um, calendar version of that kind of pathway. Steroid hormones will bind to their receptors, and the steroid hormone with the receptor can go into the nucleus. So they act as nuclear receptor-mediated alter alteration modalities of transcription, right? And so, for example, you have a nuclear thyroid hormone receptor complex, you have the retinoic acid, you have sterile binding proteins. These are the kinds of nuclear receptor-mediated responses you get from circulating hormones. Sometimes you also get unbound forms of the hormones, like a steroid that needs to bind to uh, a cytosolic intermediate, like a receptor that can move from the plasma membrane to the nucleus and then carry out its, its activity as transcription factor. 
right? So there are a lot of different motifs we're talking about here within the cell. Ultimately, when you think about a cascade of hormones in the very generic sterile sense, you get an environmental signal, which can be internal or external, and that affects the central nervous system in some way. There's a signal to the CNS. Then there's an electrochemical gradient change, and that will then turn on usually the limbic system in the brain. Then you'll get another electrochemical signal, which will work on the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus then will do something like release certain proteins. These are called releasing hormones. <clears throat> and they're in a nanogram concentration, very small amounts. Those releasing hormones will bind to receptors in the anterior pituitary, and they'll trigger from the pituitary the anterior pituitary tropic hormones. And those are usually in microgram quantities. You're going from nanogram to microgram. And then ultimately you hit a target gland, so you're not finished yet. And that could, for example, be the um, uh, various other organs, right? And that target gland will give you the ultimate hormone, which will be in milligram concentrations, such high concentrations because it's going to be in circulation, right? And you're going to get systemic effects. Now you get feedback inhibition on this pathway from the ultimate hormone, from the anterior pituitary um, tro uh, tropic hormone, and from the hypothalamic releasing hormone. And each of those can work uh, in succession as negative feedback loops controlling the predecessor of the release of that cascade. So here's a paper published in Neuroendocrinology back in 2002, citation of September, volume 76, page 137, 147. Now listen to this. Angiotensin II, AT2, sucker gene-disrupted mice have an increased blood pressure and response to the protein called angiotensin II. They also have behavioral alterations, greater response to stress, and an increased adrenal AT1 receptor. So if you disrupt AT2, you increase AT1. It's a different receptor for the same protein, for angiotensin. So in the absence of AT2, that receptor, uh, in the absence of its transcription, such as in a knockout in a mouse, these people found that an increase in AT1 receptor binding in the brain, brain area occurred. And it was involved in the regulation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, HPA axis hypothalamic paraventricular nucleus, and the median eminence, uh, all of those were involved. There's also an increase in the adrenal catecholamine synthesis, which is the end product. That's the final hormone. And it's shown all of this was demonstrated by a higher adrenomedullary tyrosine hydroxylase messenger RNA. So tyrosine hydroxylase is the enzyme which starts the synthesis of the catecholamines. This comes from tyrosine. So you get transcription of that gene, that protein is synthesized, translated, and then you get the cascade effect. And that's all in the, in the adrenal medullary portion of the adrenal gland. You also get a higher adrenal dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine levels when compared to wild-type mice when you knock out AT2 and only have AT1. In addition, AT2 receptor gene-disrupted mice had higher plasma adrenocorticotropin, or ACTH, right? And corticosterone levels 
and lower adrenal aldosterone content when compared to the well-type controls. Now, conversely, AT1 receptor inhibition in these BLJ6, uh, 6J mice, excuse me, had reduced adrenal tyrosine hydroxylase messenger RNA and ultimately catecholamine content and increased adrenal aldosterone content. So you see the switching from one receptor to another switches entirely the motif of that HPA axis, right? <clears throat> so <clears throat> back to discussing this in a more general way. You get an external or internal environmental signal. It, the central nervous system responds, electrochemical transmission to the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus then can trigger directly axonal transport of, of um, hormones like oxytocin and vasopressin. Then you get what's known as a neurohypophysis. You get a release of hormones such as uterine contraction hormones and lactation, that's oxytocin. And then the release can also be for water balance, that's the vasopressin, and the which is basically an antidiuretic hormone. Now, going back to that chemical stimulation of the hypothalamus, you can also go to these releasing hormones, and that's nanogram concentrations, remember that. That then triggers the adenohypophysis, okay? P-H-Y-S-E-S just means nature in Greek, okay? That then triggers the anterior pituitary hormones, microgram quantities, something we just mentioned, hits the target gland, then you get the ultimate hormone, and that can be at just milligram, but you can also have microgram, microgram to milligram concentrations of that in the blood, and then you get the hormonal response. So you get a long feedback loop from the ultimate hormone all the way back to the CNS. You can have an anterior pituitary hormone short feedback that goes to the adeno uh, um, hypophysis, can go to the releasing hormone, or can go directly to the hypothalamus. Then you have ultra short feedback loops that go from, say, the releasing hormone directly just back to the hypothalamus. And you have every step along the way. So you get the idea there are multiple feedback loops. Now, keep that in mind when you think about when someone takes exogenously a drug that is a pro-hormone. It's corrupting all of this regulation. This regulation is necessary to nest all the possible permutations of requirements of hormones needed in real time because the, the system is working in real time, right? It is existing. So because of that, it's a response spontaneously, almost with an immediacy, and then a mediated response, such as a hormonal response, by uh, passing all that regulation means that you lose the affinity for the regulation of the previous step in the pathway. In so doing, there are times that you can completely block the pathway so it doesn't respond correctly when it should, or you can overstimulate the pathway, thus inducing a flood of hormones when there should have only been a, you know, say a nanogram or a microgram concentration of it uh, or a, a quantity of it in the blood. So you get the idea how exogenous treatment, such as taking corticosteroids, can totally corrupt the control over these pathways when you think all the way back to the CNS and starting with the hypothalamus. Now, let's go one step further and give you a little bit more detail. Neurotransmitters can turn on releasing hormones, and they can turn them on either positively or negatively. 
And the releasing hormones, remember, that's from the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. So you can have growth hormone releasing hormone, right? You can have um, the uh, corticotropin releasing hormone. You can have directly norepinephrine. You can have the progesterone releasing hormone. You can have uh, the GnRH leading to the luteinizing hormone, right? So all of, all of that triggers, those releasing hormones trigger, for example, in the anterior pituitary hormone level, growth hormone, right? Because those are releasing hormones. They come from the hypothalamus. You can have thymotrypsin coming from TRH, directly from the hypothalamus. You can have ACTH, which is ultimately going to give us corticosteroids, uh, at that level of the anterior hormone, uh, anterior pituitary hormone level. You can have then um, the induction from the hypothalamus of this entire suite of genes, which start off as uh, a, uh, an MSH product, right? And that MSH product is going to ultimately give you beta endorphins, right? Which are involved in the analgesia, analgesia. It's going to give you alpha MSH, which is melanocyte stimulating hormone, which is going to cause skin darkening and multiple CNS functions. It's going to give you another protein called CLIP, which has multiple functions. And then from through the adrenal cortex, ACTH, adrenocortical uh, uh, tropic hormone, ACTH, at the adrenal cortex is going to give you corticosteroids, which is going to immediately affect sodium uptake. It's going to adapt to stress. It's also going to induce this thing that we all know, the anti-inflammatory immunosuppressive effect, right? So that, th and then ultimately thymo thymotrypsin can turn on, be at the level of thyroid, the thyroid hormone, and that's going to control cellular ATP, cellular ATP synthesis and turnover, increased metabolic rate, right? And the growth hormone working through IGF uh, or sometimes um, uh, other hormones that are associated with the liver or kidney can generate growth of the bone, body, tissue, and organs. And all of that basically is what we call somatic cell growth, right? Uh, and then the gonadotropin-releasing hormone can turn on the luteinizing hormone at the interior pituitary hormone level. And if the LH is turned on from testes, you get an interstitial cell development, which generates ultimately testosterone. But if LH works in the ovary, you get ovulation, which works through the corpus luteum, and then progesterone is synthesized. You see how there are different hormones stimulated, even from the precursor releasing heat hormone, depending on which tissue is stimulated, meaning which receptor is fired. To get a general idea of the interior, interior pituitary hormones with a hypothalamic releasing hormone at the center and at the uh, initial phases. Now let's go back to a paper published in 2016 in the journal Cell Death and Disease, volume seven, e-page starting at 2488. Again, the year is 2016. Now listen to this paper. Schwingomyelin phosphodiesterase, that's SMPD, isoform three, knockout mice, results in a retardation of systemic and skeletal growth, and it gives you a developmental dwarfism, okay? 
Now, we were talking about sphingomyelinases before. Now, sphingomyelinases such as neutral and acidic, those are different isoforms. These enzymes, the sphingomyelin PDEs, phosphodiesterases, are the same. They carry out the same reaction, but they have different substrate specificity. That is, depending on the fatty acid linked to the nitrogen atom in the ceramide backbone, these enzymes will have different KM values for that, for that as a substrate. So there are sphingomyelin phosphodiesterases, and there are five forms of those. And then you have multiple forms of acidic and neutral sphingomyelinases. So that means there's anywhere from seven different classes of enzymes, which will knock down sphingomyelin to ceramide phosphorylcholine. But each of those have substrate specificity, tissue specificity, and migrational hormonal activity, upstream and downstream. So in wild-type mice, the SMPD3 messenger RNA is ubiquitously expressed, and the absence of this uh, protein in the hypothalamic secretory neurons inhibited the secretion of all of those proteohormones that I just talked about. It also slows down the hypothalamus pituitary growth axis I talked about, the growth hormone, and it triggers a systemic growth retardation and that results in that new juvenile dwarf phenotype seen in that double KO mouse model. So the autonomous expression of SMPD3, that's the sphingomyelin phosphodiesterase isoform 3 in chondrocytes was shown by a functional reconstitution assay where you add back SMPD3 to the SMPD3 double knockout chondrocytes. Uh, when you use it as a transgene, you drive chondrocyte-specific COL-2A1 promoter in that mutant. So you're turning on a whole new series of chondrocyte-mediated genes, right? So SMPD3, that protein, is interestingly located in the Golgi. Of course, that makes sense because that's where you have sphingomyelin synthesis. Chondrocytes are competent secretory cells, a little bit about cell physiology here. And during the growth phase, they have an abundant secretion of what are known as extracellular matrix proteins. Those are the ECM proteins. And they are for enchondral ossification. Remember, these are cells that are going to be involved in skeletal synthesis, so it's an ossification process. And they're also involved in the longitudinal growth. And as such, when put in tissue culture, they allow insights, when you, when you use chondrocytes, into all the molecular biochemistry and molecular physiology of growth and development of the skeletal system. So there is a function for SMPD3 in Golgi vesicular protein transport. Since inhibition of that SMPD3 enzyme stalls Golgi protein transport, disrupts proteostasis, so you get proteinopathies, it induces ER stress, it compromises chondrocyte function, as you might guess, and it leads to straightforward apoptosis, program cell death. Ultimately, that will lead to skeletal malformation, as you might uh, guess or be guaranteed from this corruption of the chondrocyte pathway. And that gives you then severe chondrodysplasia, or skeletal deformation. So the action of SMPD3 and then the sphingomyelin synthase 1 which resynthesizes sphingomyelin in the Golgi complex maintains actually the sphingomyelin 
phosphatidylcholine and ceramide diacylglycerol homeostasis, which each of those being conjoiners of each of those two pathways, the glycerolipid versus the sphingolipid pathways. So ceramide is involved in sphingolipid metabolism, diacylglycerol, of course, and phosphoglycerol metabolism, phosphoglycerolipid metabolism. So that gives you a homeostasis, and that allows for the normal cogent remodeling of the Golgi membrane lipid bilayer, which then supports vesicular transport. And when you get an SMPD3 deficient Golgi complex, because you've mediated that change uh, by this double knockout or by inhibition somehow, you get a formation of vesicle carriers and subsequent Golgi trafficking, which does not lead to normal growth and development. Okay, So SMPD3 deficiency correlates with growth inhibition and to retarded development of the skeleton manifested in juvenile dwarfism and the, the entire pathology is called osteochondrodysplasia in humans. Okay? So this model, of course, is for the human study of dwarfism. So we've been talking a lot about how sphingomyelitis seem to be producing this toxic compound ceramide. Now I'm explaining to you that it's absolutely necessary for the entire HPA axis to function. Now, not the acidic or neutral sphingomyelinases, but enzymes called SMPD3s, sphingomyelin phosphodiesterases, which carry out the same reaction, but there's just a different subtlety in the difference distribution of the substrate at the level of which fatty acid chain link and level of unsaturation is found linked to that nitrogen atom and ceramide, that amide-linked fatty acid. So you see why an inhibitor of just standard sphingomyelinase would not be a good thing, even if you're trying to control inflammatory responses, say in the periphery, like in the liver or the kidney or the lung, because if they're generic inhibitors just of the sphingomyelinase activity, right, that organic chemical reaction, then you could also be knocking out these uh, sphingomyelin phosphodiesterase enzymes in the CNS, thus corrupting the entire HPA axis of hormonal flow, okay? That's the point. So continuing along with this paper, SMPD3 is the key. It actually is a neutral sphingomyelinase. It's localized in detergent insoluble membrane domains. These would be like membrane lipid rafts, right? In the Golgi. The SMPD3 SMS, that's the sphingomyelin synthase, one pathway, regulates sphingomyelin homeostasis, and as I just said, the ceramide and phospho, uh, phospholipid independent DAG pool in the Golgi complex, right? So just the SMPD3 SMS cycle will regulate SM, sphingomyelin homeostasis, when you're talking about ceramide, and then because that's not associated with phospholipid lipids, it's independent of phospholipase C. And that's all the Neiman-Pick pathway that we talked about in previous lectures. So the absence of SMPD3 suppressed ECM, that remember extracellular matrix protein transport and secretion, disrupts proteostasis, activates the, um, the unfolded protein response, and it ups ER stress, and it turns on apoptosis. So here, when you remove this neutral 
um, Schmingle Mile and Phosphodiesterase Isoform 3, you actually trigger apoptosis. Now, how can that be? Well, if you remove the activity of one of the sphingomyelinases, the other sphingomyelinases will increase in activity. So you'll still get ceramide produced, but ceramide of a specific molecular species, which will alter membrane raft, membrane lipid raft mobility, aggregate proteins at different concentrations and surface centers and nuclei in the membrane, thus changing the entire physical chemistry and biochemistry of the system, switching from a autophagy or from a homeostatic model or cell division model to one of apoptosis. Okay, so you see how that can be switched. So <clears throat> here's another interesting thing to consider. SMPD3 knockout, right? The Schwingelmyelophosphodiesterase knockout results in skeletal growth inhibition and, of course, joint malformation. And that's because you're disrupting the, the Golgi secretory protein pathway. Yeah. And that's in the hypothalamic proteohormone secreting neurons that we've just been talking about. So the research from this one paper published in 2016 offers a molecular interpretation of all the previously described hypothalamic-induced combined pituitary hormone deficiencies underlining systemic hypoplasia, all found within this SMPD3 double knockout mutant. So loss of sphingomyelin phosphodiesterase 3, that enzyme, results in an increase in sphingomyelinases, right, different isoforms. It alters or increases <laughs> de novo ceramide synthesis via the de novo pathway from palmitoyl coa and serine and the salvage ceramides from sphingosine plus alterations in phospholipase C-mediated DAG enrichment of very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids and their saturated fatty acid counterparts, which uniquely, of course, alter membrane wrap mediated signaling and cell death, plus any subsequent downstream immune response which could also be triggering some of this because of a hyper-inflammatory system as associated with obesity right? or drug over, uh, uh, overuse of both pharmaceutical and illicit drug or alcohol consumption. Right? Now, I wanted to take you back a little bit because something I've been kind of holding as a gem for a uh, because this directly relates to research I've done in my laboratory, Staph aureus, the bacteria Staph aureus, has virulence factors, multiple types, which actually caught, which are actually related to the virulence and pathogenicity of Staphylococcus aureus, a very potent bacterial pathogen in humans. And one of these types of virulence factors are known as the beta hemolysins. Now, if you think about hemolysin, that means they're hemolytic. Right? That means they break down cells in the blood. Right? Now, work from my lab way back in cooperation with Greg Bohatch, this is in the University of Idaho days, demonstrated that secreted pathogenic bacterial beta hemolysins were indeed sphingomyelinases. And you can find some of that seminal work in the paper published from a dear friend of mine who has since passed, and Kasia Jewanowska, 
and um, multiple authors, including uh, Vince Edwards, and of course Greg is in there, and Derringer's in there, and I was I was the senior author on that paper. That paper was published in 1996, and the title of it was Comparison of the Beta Toxins from Staphylococcus aureus and Staphylococcus intermedius, which is a non-human uh, bacterial system. Um, and that was published in the Archives of Biochemistry, Biophysics, Volume 335, pages 102 to 108. This is where Kasha first learned how to do lipid um, biochemistry. This is what she learned in my lab. She was my postdoc and good friend. Now, in 2007, so that puts it, what, um, about 11 years later, Greg's Bohax group demonstrated that the beta toxin is indeed a neutral sphingomyelinase, and it's secreted by not all, but many strains of the of the human pathogen Staphylococcus aureus. And they went on to tell you that the virulence factor will lyse, of course, erythrocytes. And they in one of the that's a way to evade the host immune response. It's also a way to gain and scavenge nutrients. If you're hydro, if you're lysing cells in the blood, the bacteria that are in the blood are going to be able to get pro, amino acids from protein breakdown, lipids, and of course, a lot of other essential nutrients because of cellular degradation, because of the synthesis of a sphingomyelinase in the circulation. See, so the structure, what Greg found out in 2007 was that the structure of the beta toxin was at a very good resolution of two to four angstrom um, was a sphingomyelinase kind of like the one you see in Listeria and Bacillus cereus. The beta toxin they 